Church, if you would please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Today, a great selection of some really stout words this morning. It's been good for the soul. You know, it's really appropriate as well as we head into this particular account because we're reminded again that though Christ does indeed bring healing, we know that behind all of the healings that we see most resolutely, that He doesn't heal everyone. I think that's going to be important for us to remember as we again look at why He does heal anyone at all, to show that to all who do call on His name, He will heal them perfectly, spiritually, forever. And that's really, really great news. Um, this is the third miracle in this second set of miracles. Now, again, if you just want to glance at your Bibles, I encourage you to look at 8 and 9 kind of circumspectly a little bit with me. Because as we've just come out again from the Sermon on the Mount, we approach then another set of miracles. And as we pointed out before, really, chapters 8 and 9 divide these miracles up into kind of three sets of three. So three miracles, then a call to discipleship, another three miracles, call to discipleship, and then another three sets of miracles. And we're in that end of that second set. And it seems a little bit transitional. Because at the end of this particular miracle, you have this singular account where Christ heals an individual through the forgiveness of sin. Now, he does actually heal the paralytic. But this is the only time and the first time that we have where he pronounces healing, forgiveness of sin to an individual. He said to a group of people. So this first account happening, where it happens, when it happens significance of it. And then, right after this, we have the calling of Matthew to discipleship. It's really important for us, I think, to see how this overall fits together. Essentially this, that Christ is God, therefore He has authority over all things. He continues to express that authority over all things, and therefore, He has claims, He has rights on your soul. He is the one who rules and controls all things. He has the right, then, to make claims on your but he doesn't do so demanding that you do certain things as much as he simply commands repentance of everyone. And some reject and some joyfully submit. It's a beautiful picture. I love this story. Now after being asked to leave the country of the Gadarenes, if you remember at the end of our time in chapter 8, we have verse 34 of chapter 8, And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. They had seen the terror of his miracles, that demons had been cast into pigs, and the pigs went off the cliff and were drowned. It scared them. Even the fact that he could, in a moment, just with the simple word of his mouth, bring healing to two guys that had frightened the people and beat up many as they had passed through the tombs. So even though there's incredible joy when we look at our passage today, I want you to remember where it's coming out of. That although He has exercised His authority over all creation, those who reject the fact that God is indeed authoritative over all creation will not relent and submit to His authority over their lives spiritually or in any other way. There's actually a little bit of a sadness that He got to the boat, who He's leaving, but also then who He's coming to. We see this pattern really throughout the Scriptures where Christ makes claims, some receive, some reject. 
We see it through the apostles' lives and acts. Some believe, some reject. We should not then be surprised. So then what are we called to? We're not called to cause everyone to accept. We are called to faithfully proclaim what Christ has proclaimed and trust that He will do His work. Our greatest concern is always over faithfulness. Trusting the Lord with fruitfulness. Now in our text today, we'll see how He returns to His own home city of Capernaum. And when He does so, He's doing so in grand fashion, meaning He came back on a boat, there's a paralytic, crowds are gathering, they had heard about His healings, and here comes this one. I want to read the text, and then we're going to pray. We're going to deal with the text, and by God's grace, the text will deal with us. Verse 1, chapter 9. And getting into a boat, He crossed over and came to His own city. And behold, some people brought to Him a paralytic, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. Hang on to the beautiful simplicity of verse 7. Verse 8. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Our God, we thank you for your mercies and your goodness. We thank you for your word that has been forever secure and bound together and then handed down to the saints throughout time so that we can see the Apostles' record of the historic Christ who is fully God, fully man. And we get to relive again these beautiful accounts, knowing where it's going, knowing where it's leading. And ultimately we see how you, being authoritative over all things, no one could lay a hand on you until you said it was okay. And at just the right time you did. And you did so so that you would forever secure the salvation of those who believe. And you are authoritative over our lives even today. So God, help us to think rightly about your word, what you say, and help us to be as simple-minded as the parable. We just simply do exactly what you just said to us. That we would go our way for That's our hope and prayer this morning, Lord, that there would be lasting fruit that lasting fruit in our lives would produce a church filled with joy and a community filled with the gospel going out. Some will reject, some will accept. But God, may this be the simple cadence of our lives. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, I want to get one thing uh, very clear uh, before we really dive deeper into the text, and that is that my shirt is light red, not pink. Although, if it were pink, there's enough man going on here that I could carry it off. So I just want to make that clear. All right, let's get into the text. Thank you, James, for laughing a little bit louder than us. Forgiving sin, the healing of the soul. Look at verses 1 and 2. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. It's important for us to understand that Christ is coming home. Now, we know that he is out of Nazareth. But he had set up Capernaum to be his base of operations. And Capernaum is really the center of operations for Christ and his ministry 
in Galilee, in that larger region. So hang on to that, because as he surely leaves the country of the Gadarenes on another shore, comes back to his shore, there's a lot going on here. I don't want to mince it. I don't want to get too deep into the backstory, But I think there are some things worthy of noting here. First of all is that as he comes home, he is performing this incredible miracle, yes, but the miracle of what he's speaking about forgiveness of sin. He is setting the course of what the heart of his ministry is and will be for the rest of time. He's combining what he had been doing on every other shore around the Sea of Galilee, and he's bringing it together here in his own hometown, own home base, and he's saying, the reason I've done these things is to show you that I have the authority to say, your sin is forgiven. Even the scribes understand this to be a statement that he is God. It's quite a thing. But I don't want you to miss a couple of things that are very obvious to the story, and that's that, yet again, disciples get on a boat with Jesus. It's not a big point in the sermon, but I think it's notable. You know, how firm a foundation is Jesus our Lord. He will not suffer you to face, essentially, defeat. Their first experience on the boat with Christ wasn't really all that great. I don't know how many deep sea fishing trips you've taken. I've taken one. The reason. I may do it again at some point. There will be a lot more drugs involved than there were the first time. But nonetheless, um, you know, these guys had experienced much. And yet, at the core, they trusted in the mundane, walking across a plank from one shore to get onto a boat and go to the other. There's a mundaneness to this faith that I think is really beautiful in this account, but we're not going to focus on that, but I at least wanted to note it. So there he goes. He goes to his hometown, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. In Mark and Luke, this is the account that you'd be more familiar with. When we're in Sunday school, we don't really teach the, the Matthean account, the Matthew account. Because we like the hole in the roof. We like that. Mark and Luke do as well. I'm not disparaging you. Because if anything, it just points to their faith and their sense of desperation that Christ alone could do something. They were in a desperate situation, both the one on the mat and also the one the ones that were carrying him. It's beautiful. It's great. Matthew, though, leaves that detail out. It's one of the beautiful points of the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because it helps us see that Yes, you could say that you need all of them to know any one story, but at the same time, you don't, because each one of them end up defaulting to the real issue, the real matter, even though some may give attention to more detail. The real issue we can trust for Matthew is that the point is not that they went through the roof. It is not that they necessarily loaded down. There was a huge crowd gathered around. The point is what is on display. That's right. You know, it reminded me of over in John's Gospel, one of the, the, in fact, the first series that I preached when I came here almost eight years ago was in John's Gospel. And when he talks about how the account when Christ is on the water calming the sea and when Peter's in the boat, he doesn't really even deal with the account where Peter walks on water. Because the story's not about Peter's kind of five or six step faith. It's about the one who's actually standing on the water. Christ. That's the point of this text. That's the point of saying it is only by grace through faith alone that forgiveness of sin comes. And it must come from one who has the authority to say your sins are forgiven. 
friends carried this man to Jesus. This is important for us to understand because this paralytic is lying on a bed. He is in a desperate situation. And Jesus acts on the faith that he sees. Now, this isn't to say that faith is just, again, this dormant gene that we can waken in our most desperate moments. It is the kindness of the Lord that in any of our moments of desperation that he would give us faith to seek him out. And they do. They don't care what it looks like. They don't care about appearances. And they don't even care about obstacles. The paralytic is in a desperate situation. And these guys love him enough to take him to the only one that is his only chance. And acting on their faith, Christ speaks to them. And as he so graciously does, again and again and again, he heals well beyond the request. Because they've come to Christ. It's like the woman just touching the hem of the garment. She did not bank on all that would happen to her in healing just in this desperate moment of some kind of attention getting for compassion or mercy or whatever it is she might receive, but she reached out for Christ by faith. Now, one thing I want to point out here is that, yes, he says, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Before we deal with that statement that Christ says, the nature of what he says, the guy is broken physically. Christ chooses to deal with the spiritual brokenness. This doesn't necessarily mean that he was a paralytic because he had done something sinful. We don't know if he was born a paralytic. I think the chances are good that he was because so often Christ is healing people that everyone knew that they were physically broken to put on display that even from birth there's no fix and there's, there's not just a few that might know but Christ does this work but again we don't know but here's what we do know is that even though his paralysis may not have been the result of his own personal sinful choices it certainly is part of the effects of sin so I want to be careful there mainly because we do live in a culture that if not careful, we do drift into, well, I'm sick because of this. Or, in a more heretical kind of way, if you have enough faith, you won't be sick. You know, health, wealth, prosperity kind of teaching. It would be overly extensive on the text to say that that's the application here. It's not. The issue is that Christ is Lord over all. And He is Lord over the physical but he cuts right to the heart, right to the real issue. But look at what he says. His first phrase, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. This is a beautiful description because this phrase, take heart, it's about having courageous joy is really the definition of take heart. Take heart, be courageous, rejoice, your sins are forgiven. This is the appropriate, it's, it's, an, it's an imperative command of, I'm commanding you to rejoice, but because of what I'm doing to you now. This is what healed believers should look like. They should be filled with a courageous joy. So again, I'm just in a mini application on this point, I would encourage you to ask yourself, do you face a courageous joy in your own life? And if not, if you feel more that you are paralyzed by over-analysing your life, trying to figure out everything that's going on, trying to piece together all the puzzles. I'm, I'm certainly prone to that myself, so I'm very sensitive to you 10% types out there that are like that. But others of you are wracked 
with guilt. And just a pervasive sense of somberness. Be sober-minded, yes. Be sad, appropriately, yes. But there should be somewhere in the gut a courageous joy, not a flighty giddiness, but a courageous joy that even when you sing songs like How Firm a Foundation, or as we love to sing on It Is Well, or Blessed Be Your Name. But there's this resolute occasion that says, you know what? Regardless of what happens, I will not curse the Lord. Even if He chooses not to heal, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Do you realize at this point, He had not promised physical healing to the paralytic. He proclaimed to him courageous joy before he even said, rise and walk. It's certainly at the heart of what's commended here when we receive forgiveness. So I would say then, the converse is true. If you're not facing courageous joy or feeling that in your life, in a sense, it's because you need to remember what it means to be forgiven of your sin. Go back to the cross. Revisit the nature of your redemption. In light of all your circumstances, don't leave them at the door. Bring them in. Then in light of that, remember, this one who may not remove difficult circumstances, oh, he can heal you in the sense of if you put yourself in sinful consequences, you need to deal with them. But courageously so. But maybe you come into the room and, like Delano Cotton, I mean, you weren't planning on gardening and in the middle of it having what appeared to be a massive heart attack. None of us knows. But Christ, because of forgiveness of sin, makes promises that can put in us a courageous joy. Why? Because He has the authority to say so. And that's the point where it goes from here. He faces this opposition in verse 3. Immediately when He says it, some of the scribes said to themselves, among themselves, this man is full of blasphemy. This kind of verbal instrument that Matthew uses regularly, and behold, it's, it's almost always, as you're reading the book, just in your own time, it's almost always one of these catchphrases that says, okay, here's kind of a, it's not a new section as much as it's a, it's a point to pay attention to that's a little bit transitional. So he says, pay attention, look at this. The scribes can talk among themselves. It's blasphemy. Now we know that scribes have been hanging around. They had been. They've been hanging around all the time. In fact, all the way back at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people associated Christ's teaching with the scribes. In chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, and when Jesus finished the sayings, the Sermon on the Mount, as you and I would know it, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And yet later on, we have, in chapter 8, where a scribe says, I will follow you. He says, there's, there's no place to lay your head. Scribes are hanging around. They're in the minds and hearts of the people, and they're hanging around. But at this point, when Christ makes a very godlike statement, great offense is taken. See, these scribes were the recorders, the teachers, the guardians, and interpreters of the law. And what we see regularly throughout the gospel accounts is wherever authority is exercised outside of their purview, they find great offense. They didn't just guard right interpretation. They interpreted it according to their own standards and then told the people what it meant. It'd be 
very much the kind of backdrop that you would have during the Reformation when the people didn't know the Word. And so if priests came by, if Catholic priests came by and said, hey, if you'll pay us indulgences, then you can actually get your family and friends out of purgatory. Maybe even protect yourself out of purgatory. Well, certainly the indulgences is not a biblical teaching. They didn't even give second thoughts to whether or not purgatory was even anywhere to be found in the Scriptures. Again, the Word of God resonating among the people as Christ has been proclaiming a right interpretation of the law. Remember, it is on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount. Beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the... Um, I don't think the best way to say it. Basically, his theme was, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, Sermon on the Mount. Christ himself becomes that fulfillment. He rightly interprets. doesn't bring a new interpretation. It's only new in the sense that they had missed it all along. Yes, it is impossible to keep, but Christ forever keeps it for those who believe in him. And he's showing his authority not just to keep the law, but now, after the Sermon on the Mount, he's showing his authority over the created realm by healing, casting out demons, and now he's proclaiming forgiveness of sin, which is what? The breaking of God's law. He brings it all together. Look, if they're going to find a point of contention, of all the other things they claim that Christ did wrong, at least blasphemy is the, is the one that at least could hold up to a couple of days' scrutiny in a court of law. Because he is actually saying God-like things. But only if it's not true. See, with these accusing tones, this serious accusation, they could end up pointing to not just exile, but even death. It would escalate from here. Their charge again and again and again would escalate from here. And yet he kept doing things that made it hard to refute that when he said God-like stuff, he did God-like things. And, yeah, but you can't say that. But he kept doing things that only God could do. But they keep pressing. From this point on, they press with the blasphemy charge. I think we have to reckon a little bit with these statements because can he merely be called a good teacher by those even in our culture if he's saying a godlike thing like your sins are forgiven? Which again would say you have sinned against me. That's like me walking up to somebody in the square downtown, maybe just on farmer's market Saturday morning. I just want you to know, brother, your sins are forgiven. not reckon him just to be a good moral teacher because if he is saying that your sins are forgiven and you have offended me and I have the right to forgive you of your sin and yet I'm not God, it is nothing less than a spiritual, mental, emotional abuse. It's how cults are formed. But if it is, it's the greatest news in the world. See, up to this point, it's been easy for them to marvel at the physical miracles. It's been no challenge to their own authority. But see, when it comes to actually forgiving people of sin, not only did it challenge the religious authority of the day, it actually meant this presumption that people actually understood that they were sinners. That's why, again, part of preaching the good news, I believe, is teaching the 
law. Not law as if it's a means of salvation, but law as the means of understanding. It is the way that God shepherded and understanding for His people that they were lawbreakers. And only His provided Messiah would ever fulfill the law, keeping His covenant forever, His promises. But on their behalf, if they would just have faith in this promise-keeping God, who was going to provide one who would be the perfect law keeper, and then He would bear their weight of sin on a cross, the penalty, the just due penalty, that the law has pointed out all over time. Death. When you sin, death has to happen. But you have to keep killing stuff. Why? Because that stuff doesn't get off the altar. And then you need to have new people to keep offering the dead stuff, who are these priests. Why? Because eventually, after so many number of whatever the years go by, the priests die, and they don't get up out of the grave. perfectly fulfills the law in his life, lays down his life as that sacrificial lamb, and he gets up. No more sacrifice. He lays himself down by his own authority because no one touches him unless he says it's okay. As a priest, he offers himself up, gets up, no more priests. Christ is the fulfillment of it all. But you have to believe that there is some bad news as a backdrop to believe in the good news. We are sinners in need of a Savior like this. So he fixes his authority. He shows the connection between the physical and the spiritual. But in doing so, he first addresses what he knows is in the hearts of men. Verse 4, that Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the rise that I'm sorry that the Son of Man has authority to, on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, "Rise, pick up your bed again." He knew their thoughts, because Matthew's careful to say thoughts. Most likely, these were not things that they uttered out loud. But whether or not he, you know, you can presuppose that he has really good hearing, because they just were saying this among themselves. You know, look, it doesn't matter how you want to mince this. He knows the intent. See, the word for knowing here means understanding. He knew their thoughts. To know fully, it's the perfect tense of of the word for understanding in the Greek. For us to understand that then, we know that even if he heard their whispers, he knew exactly what they meant. Because Christ knows. Okay, same is still good for us today. No matter what we might offer him with our lips, he knows the real intent of the heart. Christ knows. And it's only on that basis as to whether or not we are sincere in our faith and following Him. But He knew the case. Just even in that exercise, it's showing His authority over men. It's not guesswork. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. No, He knew perfectly the intent and motive. Blasphemy, charge, accusation. There's enemies. And He called them on it. So then he says, okay, what's easier? Here he begins to make the connection between the spiritual and the physical realm. What's easier? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? What would you say? Well, I was asking this last night um, to our kids, and Elizabeth was talking to me about it, and um, she said, well, because she, you know, she kind of knows uh, not just Sunday school answer, but like pastor home. And um, but she says the easier thing is to say rise, rise and walk. Because she knows, you know, kind of this inherent sense that Christ is authoritative to say the other. But, but to them, it would have been easier to say, 
you know, I forgive you of your sins. Why? Because there's no real evidence. You can't see evidence right off the bat that a person's sins are forgiven. He says, okay, but so you'll know that I have the authority to do so. He just turns and says, rise and walk. Charles Spurgeon says, I may bring both forms of malady to Jesus, and he will deal with them. Lord, heal my spirit and cure my flesh. Yea, thou wilt do this most effectually by raising my body incorruptible as thine own. Look, for every believer for all of time, he will actually accomplish both. He may not choose to do so temporally, but he will and has promised to do so eternally. The joy is you can experience forgiveness of sin right now by calling upon the Lord in faith that Christ alone is able to save. Why? Because it's against Christ alone, essentially, that we've sinned. We ask Him to forgive us. See, Christ's economy always bakes on what is eternally good. So even to teach this lesson, in front of the crowds that are gathered around in this, this hut, this little place, this house, He addresses the scribes, even though they're talking amongst themselves. Amongst themselves. And to leverage the weight of everything on the eternal matters, he says, okay, well, I'll heal on the physical matters. Rise and walk. Legs straightened, arms stiffened. There's no atrophy. We don't have to really deal with the muscular tissue, but the guy's been paralyzed. He just takes up his mat and goes home. He doesn't have the physical muscular acumen to bend over. Or the biceps, or the triceps. He is healed throughout. But Christ had not promised that that would happen first. When He said, your sins are forgiven. You will not see Jesus bolster men's physical comfort in earthly kingdoms at the expense of man's longing for the eternal To make an eternal point, he did something in the temporal realm. But in this case, he first dealt with the eternal. Forgiveness of sin. He has the right to do so. He has the authority to do so. So in taking the so-called easy way out, he actually pronounces physical healing to show that he has the authority to spiritually What is what happens? Well, verse seven. And he rose and he went home. Now, I don't know. If, maybe you're struggling with scripture memory. Memorize verse seven this morning. Really easy to memorize. Pretty sure you could get it before we're done this morning. He got up. He rose and went. He was commanded to be. Joyful because his sin had been forgiven. Because his friends and he himself had come before Christ saying, You alone have the ability, the authority to heal. And Christ graciously heals him of his most serious malady, his virgin his sinfulness. And then he heals him physically, and he just simply does what he says. It's not in reluctance. He's joyfully experienced the forgiveness of sin, 
And God has enabled him to get up on his feet and go home to tell of these things. Guys, there is a sense that every story we can tether it to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18-20. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Why? To go and tell. And as you are going, baptizing, teaching, to obey what He's commanded. This circumspect, lifelong view of discipleship as you're going. You don't have to drive 16 hours, go to Boulder. You don't have to get on planes. We encourage you to be on planes and go on mission trips. We encourage that. But in the more normal daily course of your life, as you are going, you are, based on the authority of Christ who has forgiven you, He has given you the ability physically to get on your feet and go home, work, and to proclaim the authority that Christ has to forgive sins. I mean, do you ever see him treat people who are physically unable to do anything for themselves like, like you would kind of woo a puppy? Does he ever do the same thing when he commands repentance? No. 100% of the time in the Scriptures, every single time Jesus says repent, it's an imperative. Because He has the authority to command it. And His authority is in those that He has forgiven. You, therefore, must speak authoritatively His words. Now, I want to caution you to leave here and just tell people rise and walk. You may not want to do that. But you absolutely are commanded of Scripture that because of the one who has said, rise and walk, you are to say, in proclaiming the gospel, if you desire to be with him forever, then you must repent of your sin. You aren't wooing. I'm not saying don't be nice. Be who he has made you to be, but you must proclaim his words. You know, it reminds me when I was asking Jan to marry me, I just told her what was going to happen. Actually, I did ask a question, and she actually delayed her answer. But that's for some other session counseling, maybe later. He commands repentance because he's commanded. This simple response is still in fear. He doesn't go home shuddering. He's going home rejoicing, just like the crowds. They were afraid. So were the people in Gadara. They were afraid, but they responded by rejecting Christ. Fear is always the beginning, but whether or not you glorify God in your response is whether or not you praise Him in response and obey Him in your praise. It's always going to begin with a measure of fear. Why? Because He has the authority over all. If that authority, if that authority scares you for what it means in threatening your earthly kingdom, you're going to tell him to go away. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've come here, but you've wanted Jesus to more put an ethical, moral healing stamp on the, your pursuit of the American dream. But instead, he's commanding you to repent. Fall before me as one who needs forgiveness of sin. You've come for one reason, but let me give you the real 
I pray that you'll just get up and go. You know, let me, let me give you a little side application for parents. Parents, it's difficult to parent. It's hard. We are taught to be these exemplifiers of the gospel in our homes, and then if you teach your kids enough, then they use words like, you know, you're not supposed to exasperate me as if do your chores as an act of exasperation. Um, or, um, you know, whatever the case is, is that we it's hard, though, to, to, to parent under grace because it feels like so much of parenting is just about the law. Do this, and if you don't, you're getting consequences. It just feels so wrong. Let me, let me encourage you to have a perspective that I think will help you that will reflect a key theme in this text. Okay, and this would include, then I'm also speaking to you children. I would encourage you, yes, it is, there is some law and there's certainly grace. I would encourage you, though, to have, in a sense, an authority mentality when it comes to raising kids. And I don't mean authoritarian, like warding over and being mean and just barking out orders. I mean you are training your children to listen to the voice of the Lord. What does Christ do? Rise and I do my own version of that every morning. It's my kid. Get up and go do your chores. Come. You know, but there's an authority behind that. I mean, I don't make the connection here. Jesus said, you know, brought you into this world, which is not even right. So that's not the right thing to But you are. You're training them to listen to the voice of authority, which does. It does include some law. Here's what it says. Here's what the Scriptures say. And even if... Even if what I'm telling you isn't what the Scriptures say, the fact that I'm telling you this as a parent, since the Scripture does say, honor your father and mother, obey your parents, it's good for you to do that. If you have an authority bent on parenting, you're starting to connect. Well, yes, the law has an authority over our lives, but in a sense it condemns us. There is that. But then Christ has authority because He's fulfilled the law, and there's grace. And so the reason is you're wanting to train your children to listen. It's not just so that in that proverbial way, that they won't run out to the street and get hit by a car just simply because they wouldn't pick up their toy inside the house, upstairs, far away from the street. I train you like this. If you don't come, if you don't stop, you're going to run out there and you're going to become part of the grill of that car. Some of you dads have done that. I know you talk like that. Maybe. I've heard about people doing that. Going to those extreme kind of things. You're training them, though, to listen to the voice of authority. That's really your role as a because by God's grace, when He then hears the Word, they know the Word to be authoritative. They're in that vein already of receiving what's authoritative and responding to it. At the end of the day, what do you want? You want their hearts. You don't want just their lip service. You want their hearts. You want their joyful obedience. Again, you're not saving them, but you are conduits that God uses in your home by His grace for the Gospel. And you can model it in how you parent. Train them to listen to the words of authority. Be consistent, be calm, but be steady. And by God's grace, according to His will, they will respond to His word when it speaks into their lives. Now, that said, as He says, as He just gets up and He goes home, I would encourage you, bear witness first in your homes among those who knew you even before your transformation. This guy has a lot to say. It's the most simplest of responses. He got up and he went home. 
I mean, can you even fathom what that's like when he walks in the door? Walks in the door? Honey, I'm home? She's never heard that before. Mary, probably not. And he goes and proclaims it among those that are near. Christ has already done this. Go home. But we want to follow you. You just delivered us from demons. No, I want you to go tell your family. Guys, you're not going to find a very exact linear path to, oh, wait, I'm supposed to let the dead bury the dead. I, I must go do missions. Maybe you will. Keep turning the pages. Then it'll say, go home. oh, well, i got to go home now. Don't stress over it. As you are going, faithfully proclaim the goodness of God and His authority and the salvation of the souls of God. As you are going everywhere, circumspectly, stop categorizing what it means to make disciples. You are one, so make them. Everywhere you go. The people saw it. They beheld what happened. They were afraid and they glorified God. They saw, they were afraid, and they glorified God. Look, if you've been redeemed, if you're here this morning as a Christian, probably most of you are, there is a simple pattern here that I would encourage you to do even in your devotion every morning. Open your eyes to God, meaning the text. See what He's done. Let there be an appropriate measure of fear, meaning He is other. He is transcendent. Don't always look for yourself in the text over individualistically. See who he is and how he addresses you and sit there for just a minute with a little bit of trepidation that he has authority and rule over you. And in this case, paralytic just did what he said. What has the scripture simply told you to do? It's beholding and behaving. If you do not behold Him, you will not behave like He wants you to. See His miraculous work. Remember your salvation and go and do likewise. They glorified God. They connected what Christ was doing and what He said with God Himself. In their response, whether they they weren't necessarily all becoming believers in this moment, but they were at least connecting that while the scribes were saying blasphemy, they made the connection. Like God, well, he is a So I would ask you some things. Do you really believe that Christ alone can forgive sins? It's easy to read the story. There's a roof, and this is so cool. God gets up, he's healed. Do you really believe that he alone can forgive sin? I mean, really, where else are you going to find your comfort? Why else would you go to someone who can't even say, rise and walk? Why would you go to any other source to find relief from your sin than to the one who can command that legs be straightened and the dead be raised? He alone has the authority to forgive sin. Go to Christ. Expose your sin to Him. Satan will love to keep your sin in the dark. Pray with elders. Pray with other believers. Confess your sin to one another. I'm not talking about the sometimes the wildly inappropriate college revival kind of moments where you're spouting out to thousands some private sin. No, but go to a trusted brother, a, bro- a trusted sister in Christ. Don't let it stay in the dark. Why? Because if you expose it to Christ, 
His goodness and His glory and His authority to forgive your sin will overshadow the darkness that Satan wants to keep you in. And you will then be able to do what he says, which is take heart. Be courageously filled with joy. Get up, go home, and speak of these things. Do you believe that Christ alone can forgive your sin? If you do, then you have to believe that Christ is fully God, fully man, not parts. Fully. Totally. Maybe you're coming to Christ this morning. Maybe for the first time you're realizing Christ is the only one. I, I, I want Him. This may be today your time of true salvation. Part of the confession of a true believer. Even early on, without knowing a whole lot of theology or doctrine or anything else, you must believe that Christ is exactly who He said He is. Fully God. Fully man. Risen from the dead. Perfect. Yet for your sin on the tree. Rose from the dead to eternally validate what He has done for you. To secure it for all time. And trusting only in what He's done. It's not a meeting halfway. Did the paralytic meet him halfway? No. He came to Christ where Christ was. Christ beckoned him through friends who had heard the story. We don't know the backstory of how it got to his friends. But they loaded it up, loaded him up on a mat and brought him down through the roof and said, Meet Jesus. Do you believe then that He bore your sin and all of those things? Only Christ. Only Christ. If you believe that He alone can heal people of their disease of sin. If you really believe that. Then believer, when is the last time you reached out and you picked up just one corner of someone else's mat and brought them to Christ? Look, this is not the guilt part of the But Christ proclaimed forgiveness when He noticed, and it's plural, their faith. Not just the paralytics, but even the friends. They all, as a group, were displaying in all their own way. Only Christ. No one else. Nothing else. Only Christ. If you really believe that and you taste it, the authority of Him over your sin and relieves you of a damnable future but present joy? When is the last time that joy spilled over to pick up the corner of someone else's neck? Because look, Jesus did not meet you halfway. He didn't. There is no co-piloting going on here. This paralytic is another example. Real person, historic, but is another example of your spiritual condition, just like the thief on the cross. Could not pop himself off and go do some good things first. All he could do was say, only Christ. Lazarus, dude is not stirring. Lazarus, get up. You your lost friends are helpless. And it is a gracious gift of God to be privileged to pick up just one corner of the mat. But make no mistake, you cannot think that dragging them on their mat to go have a cappuccino is going to lead to their conversion unless words are spoken 
that say only coffee. I'm a big fan of cappuccino. Okay? Believe in the beautiful work of the gospel around God-ordained beverages. I love that. Enjoy that. Show that you have that. But do not think that you, in your friendliness, in your hospitality alone, if you do not lead that to say only Christ, and by only Christ you mean that I'm talking about the whole of the gospel. God alone, saving sinful man through Christ alone, who is risen from the dead. And it demands repentance, otherwise you're just no better than a demon. It demands repentance to turn from trusting and banking on the world to turning and trusting beautifully on this glorious Christ. However you say the whole gospel, it requires words come out of your mouth. What a joy and a privilege to go home, pick up the mat, and tell somebody, don't miss that. Because you're just simply telling what Christ has already shown in this text. He has the authority. That's ultimately what this account is about. Christ's authority to forgive sin and sinners like us. So, church, fearfully, before a God alone who can do that, glorify His name. Before the throne of God above. The one who is truly to be feared because he can condemn them. But for those who have faith in Christ alone, he has chosen to actually deliver them from condemnation. There's no sin that can hold you in such guilt, to rack you with such pain, that can keep you from rejoicing in him. So confess your sin. What he did once is good for always. He has authority to do so, and he never stops being authoritative because he's alive. And surely as He raised the dead and they died again, once He died, He rose again and there is no more death. He is alive. Therefore, His authority is perpetual. It's pervasive. It will be forever. Because He is authoritative, we then know that we go in His power and strength. Just like the Great Commission says, right? In 28, 18, by His authority, we go and make disciples. It's not your own strength. What freedom there is in that. Because He has authority, we can go even to our own homes. You can go tell your parents. You can go tell your grandparents. You can go tell your wife. You can go tell your husband. No, you cannot control how they'll respond. But just as surely as it is Christ's authority to have saved you, it's His authority to save them. Trust Him to do His will according to you. You do what you're called to do. Because He's authoritative, we can glorify God. We can every day while He tarries, until He comes, we can every single day get up and go home. Or rise up, go out, do our chores, rise up and glorify God, listen to His words of authority, and as we are going, by His authority, make disciples. Because He's the one at the end of the day that really makes them, but through us as we take what a privilege to be with the friends who carry the mat. What a joy to have been the paralytic on the mat. To have been forgiven sin, even if He doesn't deliver us from paralysis. And actually, let me say that quickly to you. If you're here today and you're looking for Christ to fix your problems, just as I said earlier, but in case you missed it, the real problem for you today is that you need forgiveness. Need a Savior. 
even more than you need a thing. He might heal you. He might deliver you from a wealth of indebtedness. He might deliver you from an awful marriage into a beautiful marriage in restoring what looks like is irreparably broken. He, he, He might do those things. He might even take away your cancer. He might. But even if your story ended with And like the thief on the cross, you did believe in that. You have received all of the healing for all of time that you will ever need. So come to Christ today, banking on the fact that He will absolutely forgive your sin if you call upon the name of the Lord. Faith in Christ alone. Because the joy that will produce in you will be by far enough to live the rest of your days, even if He chooses not to get you up out of your chair. That's the kind of God we have. So I pray by God's grace you find yourself in the story today. But ultimately I pray that you find yourself submitting to His authority today. Asking forgiveness for sin, rising up, going home and telling of the mercies of God. And as a crowd, as a church, that with the appropriate measure of reverential fear, we glorify His name today. God, I pray that You would help us today. Help us, Lord, to see rightly that You alone have authority over these matters and over them, the hearts of men and women like us. But with that authority over all creation and even over all the spiritual realm, that with that authority, you absolutely will bring forgiveness to anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So Lord, I pray that there would be just someone who calls out to you today, trusting and believing that you are not only able, but willing and desire to forgive them of their sin. To heal them of their real brokenness spiritually promising that ultimately you will heal them even if in this world you don't. Lord, there are others of us who are believers and we have diminished the beautiful biblical view of your authority in our lives and we have become more concerned about this kingdom on this world than we have with the world to come. And therefore, we've not given thought to picking up the mats of other people who are spiritually paralyzed in need of being saved. We've just focused on ourselves and we've allowed the cares of this world to choke out our passion for the eternal. God, I pray that we would confess our sin of neglecting to reach out to those paralyzed around us spiritually. But then realize that that doesn't mean you have to be crucified afresh. What you did once is good for always. And that we would rejoice again courageously. And then go home and tell. Leave this place intact. God, it's the appropriate response of those who have been forgiven. It's to fearfully, reverentially glorify your name by going and proclaiming who you are. So God, may it be so. Reign in our hearts even in this moment for your pleasure.